Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mid-Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jack Boyle. Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jackler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. You only need to talk to country-based owners and trainers to realise that the Tab Highway concept has been a runaway winner for racing New South Wales. The scheme met with some opposition when introduced in 2015, but it wasn't long before the Tab Highways captured the imagination of regional horsemen. Early days, trainers like Matt Dunn, Matt Dale, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the weekly highways, but now there seems to be a different winning trainer every week. For bush owners, the prize money has been a revelation, while punters love the highways as a betting medium. From a media viewpoint, the highways seem to throw up a good story most weeks. The Tab Highways are a key component of the new face of New South Wales racing. Shane Dye was 33 years old when he left Sydney in 2000 to take up his new contract with the Hong Kong Jockey Club. He'd been riding for 18 years in New Zealand and Australia, recording about 1,600 winners, including an astonishing 93 Group 1s. He estimates having won between three and 400 races in Hong Kong, including another seven or eight Group 1s. His success in Hong Kong was dampened by four race falls – In one of them, he sustained nasty back injuries, while his final crash in 2006 left Shane with head injuries, which required emergency surgery. Nobody was surprised when he came back much earlier than doctors recommended. He resumed in Hong Kong. He later returned to Sydney for a short stint before finishing his riding career in his native New Zealand. Just for the record... His last winning ride was on Kidnapped at Ellerslie on the 25th of May 2013. His last ride in a race was an unplaced effort on Goyescus at Tarapa on June the 8th, 2013. As he unsaddled Goyescus and walked to the jockey's room, he knew he'd never ride again. He made no announcement, he told nobody of his plans. The absence of publicity was in direct contrast to the racing headlines he'd been making for most of his career. Shane Dye was brash, he could be cocky, he had unwavering confidence and his outspoken opinions made him an appealing subject for the newshounds. In fact, one journalist dubbed him the human headline And that description is so close to the mark, I wish I'd thought of it myself. And the human headline is on the phone right now from his hometown of Matamata in New Zealand. Great to catch up, Shane. Thanks for your time. Hi, John. That's okay, mate. Well, a lot of people are wondering what you've been doing in recent times. You were living in Macau when COVID started to gather momentum and you made an early decision to head for the relative safety of New Zealand. Is that how it happened? Well, no, not really. <laughs> um, 
I was actually, I have three months out of Macau every year between Australia and New Zealand, and that's always late December I have with my boys in Sydney. Then I go to the Gold Coast, I like it up there, and then I come to New Zealand. But I got a phone call from Macau um, uh, early March and saying that in two days they were going to shut it down. Um, So I'd want to get back um, um, because I am connected there with the right people. And um, Mm. so I got back to Macau the day before it was closed up and uh, stayed there for as long as I could. Mm. And my visa had run run out in July and I got it extended, but I couldn't actually stay there anymore. And Macau actually, they allowed everyone to leave Macau. They gave everyone one month and it was, I think, June the 16th to July the 16th. Mm. And you had to get on a ferry and go straight to the Hong Kong airport and you had to go through the government and register. And it was very, very difficult to get out of there. But Macau still shut down. They don't allow anyone more or less in or out. It's it's very safe. They haven't had a death yet there. Mm. Um, they've done a really good job, Macau. So mm. unfortunately, I had to leave here. And the only place I really wanted to come to or I could go to mm. uh, was New Zealand. So right. I come back here. Well, you're staying with your mum in Matamata. How yes. does Dawn yes. fancy having you under her feet again all these years on? Well, John, if you know me, um, <laughs> I like good food. So um, <laughs> they're not used to what I eat um, like my mum's just a simple old mum and you know what they like and mm. they make the pies and whatever, but unfortunately I like to upgrade a bit. So she's put on a heap of weight since I've been back. I know that. I go to the groceries every day and do the shopping. Yeah. Who's put a heap on, you it's, or mum? Mum. Actually, I have a little bit too because I'm in a routine wherever I go, but back in Matter Matter it's cold and um, there's not oh. a lot to do here and uh, you're kind of indoors so you eat a bit more. But my routine is in, in Macau, I, I get up, I might have an ice cream for breakfast and that'll be it all day. I've never changed that throughout my life. <laughs> I swim every day, which has been the best thing for my body and uh, I like a bit of sun. And um, mm. um, so I'll have dinner normally late at night and that's it. I only eat once a day. Mm. Let's go back to that 2006 race fall. You tell me you were in surgery one hour after hitting the ground. And that's what saved yeah, well, your life. Yeah. Well, when you learn about head injuries, um, uh, um, and a lot of people in New Zealand actually die in car crashes through head injuries because they can't actually get them into operating quick enough. Mm. Um, they say if they're operating in under two uh, two hours, you'll have slight brain damage. Well, I was very fortunate because um, my brain damage is my short-term memory isn't as good as it could be. Um, and that's something I've learned to live with. Mm. Um, uh, two to four hours and you can have major brain damage and they say if you're bleeding longer than that, you're dead. Well, when I fell, um, um, I said to another jockey, I think it was a jockey from South Africa called Anthony Dalpesh who went over the top, he was following me. Mm. And he said, I was lying on the ground and I said to him, I broke my back, I've broken it before, it's broken, I couldn't move. Mm. But he said, next minute my eyes rolled and I just went unconscious and they were really worried and they wished me into the ambulance and um, um, I had very, very good people looking after me there, and that's one thing I will say. I can't compliment them enough on what they did for me in Hong Kong, and um, Mm. they were operating in under an hour, but they'd already made phone calls to New Zealand to my um, parents and um, uh, the the boys in Australia and uh, said I may not make it out of surgery. They were very worried, Mm. apparently. 
So I survived. I come out of it. I had broken ribs and I had a collapsed lung and I lost my right eyesight, which I got back after about a month. And um, mm. um, the memory was no good, John. Like um, I had to go back to school. And uh, when I say that, you'd go to this clinic about two or three days a, a week. And it was quite quite interesting because they would put things in front of you. You knew what they were, but you couldn't think of their name, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they'd get you to remember like pen, paper, um, uh, uh, book or whatever. And you'd say 10 things. And then she would talk to you. Mm. And I couldn't remember any of them. But Good. then she would go numbers, right? Like one four five nine, one four five nine, one four five nine six, one four five nine six, one four five nine six eight. And mm. she'd talk to you, mm. and she'd do give you the ten numbers from zero to nine, and then she'd talk to you for two minutes, and then she'd say to me, "Repeat those numbers." Guess what, John? Mm. I could just roll the numbers off. Goodness me! Just roll them off one after the other in the order she gave them to me. But anything objects I couldn't. And when I, I was in hospital for about five weeks or six weeks, and and when I got home, like there's a teapot at home, and I know, I know it's, I know you put water in there. I know you drink out of it. Mm. But what's it called? Really. You've got no idea what it's called. You just mm. can't remember what it's called. Mm. And it's like my favourite thing is movies and actors. And I'd watch a movie and I have to have the internet going in front of me, my computer, mm. because I knew the name of the actor, but I couldn't remember him in movies, but I couldn't remember the movies. Yeah. So I'd have to Google it to remember the movies, you know. Mm. Um, and, and that was a big thing. And it took time to mm. get around it and learn how to live with things like that. The other thing when you have a head injury, John, is you sleep a lot. And um, I was really worried about that because... Not your caper, sleeping. That's not my caper. Everyone knows (laughs) me. I'm about a three or four hour a day. Uh, When I was in Macau, I stayed with Jeff Allendorf up there. He's a lovely guy. Mm. And he'd go to bed at 8.30 and I'd be up. He'd get up at 12 for a drink and go to the toilet. I'd be up. Mm. And then at 4.30, I'm still up. He said, I've never seen anything like it. Every time he got up, I was up. But I'm about a three or four hour person and always have been. Um, yeah. And I hate going to bed. I absolutely hate it. Yeah. Um, when I go to bed, I'm asleep within three minutes always, you know? Mm. And then three hours later, I'm up type of thing. So mm. when you have a head injury, you sleep an awful lot and mm. you're very tired. And they say it's the best thing for you and it's your recovery. Um, but I was starting to get worried because I thought, shit, I'm going to miss out on this life if I'm sleeping all the time. <laughs> you think sleep's a waste of time, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I love these people who tell me you need eight hours of sleep, otherwise, you know, it's going to catch up and you're going to live shorter and whatever. And I go, yeah, but you add up to that number of hours I was during the day and add it to what you're going to miss out on by sleeping. I bet you I'll probably live more life than you. <laughs> yeah. Now, Shane, let's just bring fans up to date with what you're doing nowadays. I think I can say you're a professional punter, but you bet only on Hong Kong racing. You know the form backwards and you love the jackpot betting that's available on Hong Kong racing. John, I just concentrate on Hong Kong. I've found a niche in life, which um, um, I don't know whether I'm a professional punter, but if you want to say that... uh, and I just have the odd bet on Hong Kong, and I seem to survive at it, and um, I've got a good lifestyle, and uh, something I always wanted to do, even when I was riding. And um, I put a lot of work into it, and it's worked. 
You know, it's not widely known that your father, Ray, was a jockey, not for very long and with only moderate success, but your grandfather, Vic Dye, had great success and I believe he was one of the best of his generation in New Zealand. Yeah, that's correct. He won uh, Group 1 races um, um, in um, New Zealand and I think there was one I'd ridden like, it might have been 50 years apart, one in New Zealand. He won 50 years before and I won it 50 years after, Mm. which is quite an achievement. But uh, he was a very good jockey apparently. Um, Naturally, I didn't see him ride or see tapes. They weren't around in those days. Mm. Um, But Dad didn't have much success and gave up, but uh, I was always going to be a jockey. You'd ridden ponies a lot as a kid and you knew the difference between a hoof and a hock when you became apprentice to the great trainer Dave O'Sullivan and your co-apprentice was Dave's son Lance who went on to great success. Happy days? Oh, very. But, John, I was riding track work at 10 or 11 or 12, Were you? you know. Mm. Um, I was riding gallops. You know who was called Chivalry? I remember Chivalry, you yeah. you remember him? I do. He, he won, won the at Tankard Stakes. Stakes. Yes, I, I called That's it. correct. Mm. Okay. And he won the – he ran second to Dulcify in the year that Dulcify was electrifying in the um, Cox, Cox Plate. Plate. Yeah. And and then after the Cox Plate, he got beat ahead by Dulcify in the McKinnon Stakes. Did you ride him I work? Used to ride, I used to ride him work when I was 12. Goodness he me. He was my favourite horse. Illegally, was, of course. You were riding could work you, illegally. Could you imagine kids doing that in Sydney or anywhere? <laughs> and that's why there's no superstars anymore in Australian racing as kids. You know, they don't breed them because it's you can't you, – John, John, look, this gets me all the time, this. Um, to be successful young, you've got to be doing it all your life, mm. right? Andre Agassi couldn't pick up a tennis racket at 16 and be good. He was doing it at two. Um they tell me it's all because of insurance and safety, which is fair enough. But then again, you have a look at a bloke called Max Ben-Staffen. You know mm. Max Ben-Staffen? Mm, I know the name, yep. He's the great Grand Prix rider, uh, driver, I should say. Yeah. You know what age he was when he drove in the Formula One in Melbourne? Mm. He was 17. Goodness me. 17, and he's driving in Formula Ones around the world. 17. I think he won his first Formula One race at 18. Mm. Now, these kids are all driving go-karts at Lewis Hamilton's at fives and sixes and sevens and eights. They're crashing, they're racing. Yes, they get hurt. Of course they get hurt. It's part of growing up and that's what happens. Mm. But in Australia, oh no, you can't do any of that, you know? Mm. So um, um, I think I, I, I always say, you name a champion, a superstar apprentice, and the last superstar apprentice in Australia. Mm. Name one. You can't. No. The last great apprentice in Australia was um, you had Malcolm Johnson, Wayne Harris, those in the 70s. Then you went to Darren Gauchy, who was a superstar apprentice. He, he changed mm. the world mm. uh, racing in Melbourne. And when I say a superstar, a superstar is someone who's on the paper, in the papers, mm. you know, all the time. They're doing TV shows. Yeah. The, the leading jockey. Darren Beedman was one in Mel and Sydney at that time, right? Mm. Now, since then, I don't think there's been one. Now, Damien Oliver was a very good apprentice, but he wasn't a superstar. He was a good apprentice. He's a superstar jockey. He ended up mm. a superstar jockey, but as an apprentice, he was a good apprentice. Mm. Uh, Paddy Payne was a good apprentice, but they're in the 80s, late 80s. Mm. 30 I years ago. Name, uh, 
30 years ago. I cannot name one good apprentice in Australia in 30 years. And if anyone can, please tell me. So what it comes back to is the system, John, and the system has not worked and it isn't working. And that's the problem with jockeys these days. Well, mate, here's a date for the trivia buffs. 28th of December 1982, the meeting was at Tarapa and you rode a chestnut mare called Ophelia in a maiden handicap. That was your first winning ride. That ignited the spark. Yeah, well, it was actually Rotorua, John. Rotorua, Um, I beg your pardon. Yeah, they're only an hour apart. Tarapa was your last ride. Yeah, that's correct. And I'll give you another bit of fact. It was the first day that Darren Gauchy rode his very first winner in Melbourne. Same day. Same day. Mm. Mm. 1985, and it was expatriate New Zealand trainer Brian Smith who was then training at Rose Hill, who talked you into getting to Sydney. Now, by then, you'd been champion New Zealand apprentice twice, so your reputation preceded you. You were 18 and indestructible. Um, Well, I got a bit of a a sniff of it the year before. I'd only been riding 18 months, and Robert Sangster and Peter Bella owned a horse in New Zealand called La Grigier, trained by Laurie Atwaxham. And she was favourite for the Corfell Cup. And I went and rode her and I was 17. And um, she started in the Herbert Power. And she was favourite that day and favourite for the Corfell Cup the following week. Mm. But the track was rock hard that year and she never went on it. And um, so she didn't run in the Corfell Cup. But what happened was Neville Begg wanted me to ride his horses on the Wednesday. I think Ronnie was suspended. Mm. So I rode three or four for Neville and one for Tommy Hughes. And um, mm. um, I rode a horse called Eastern Bay in the Coongee, I think it was. Was mm. the Coongee always on the Wednesday? Yes, it was. In those days? Yep. Yeah. And I rode, and I think she ran second or third in the Coongee. And, and I saw the attention Darren Gauchy was getting over there, and it was just mind-boggling to mm. me. Like, he was a superstar. Mm. You know, and our career started at the same time and I was doing in New Zealand what he was doing in Australia but without any money and the attention that he was getting, you know. So um, I I loved the lifestyle. I was there a week and my boss, Mr O'Sullivan, made me come home. I could have stayed longer and ridden uh, the following week at Mooney Valley I had rides but he wanted me home. Yeah. So I come back um, and I was still apprentice and got that job offer in Sydney and I said to Mr O'Sullivan, I want to go and he allowed me to go. Mm. After you got to Sydney in 85, it wasn't long before stories started to circulate that you were chasing rides, sometimes at the expense of other jockeys who'd been doing all the work with horses. Now, your earliest nickname was Fingers, you'll remember this, implying that you were constantly dialing phone numbers. You certainly didn't let the grass grow under your feet, did you? John, I've never complained of I've lost a ride, and that was part of the business. In New Zealand, um, I used to get the paper at 5 o'clock in the morning and the nominations used to be in there once a week for a Saturday meeting on a Tuesday. Mm. And so I knew what was in the fields and the nominations on a Tuesday morning through the through the paper. Mm. There was no such thing as fax or internets where you go on and look at the fields. Remember the days you had to wait for the paper to come out? <laughs> yeah, it took forever, yeah. 
And and I used to remember all the horses. So before I went to the track work on the Tuesday morning, I used to have all these horses in my head and I'd ask all the trainers at the track, who's riding them, who's riding them? And then as soon as I got home from track work, I wouldn't go and have breakfast. I'd hop on the phone and ring every trainer for rides. Mm. And that's just the way it was. That's how you got rides. And, and um, yeah. And so when I went to Australia, of course, I just rang up for rides and there was nothing wrong wrong with it. Um, mm. But then later on, it changes, and people are ringing you. You're not ringing them after success, and and um, I can tell you this: that I had a lot of very good rides offered to me, good horses when I was flying and number one there, mm. which people wouldn't believe, and they would be thinking that I would be ringing up, taking rides, their rides when I wasn't at all. Jockey managership was gathering momentum around this time and would lead to the situation we have today where 95% of jockeys employ managers. Now, this is something you never looked like doing. You preferred to do it yourself. I did it myself. Um, A manager wouldn't work for me. It just couldn't. They get you riding every race, which I didn't like. They have you riding horses you don't want to be riding and. You know, every time I went to the races, I was riding horses for a reason. Um, I couldn't work with a manager. Um, not a hope in the world, you know. When I went to Australia after Hong Kong, I had one or two, but it just, you know, it was never going to work with me. Mm. The other thing that stood you in good stead over the years was your appetite for track work. They couldn't keep you away from the track. You know, Gay Waterhouse told me a story once, and you can either refute it or confirm it. She told me you turned up at Randwick one Saturday morning. It was golden slipper morning. You were working a young one from her stable, which bucked and threw you forward, and you actually caught your arm in the breastplate. It could have been very serious, but you got away with it. She scolded you and told you to go home because you were riding Canny Lad, the slipper favourite, about eight hours later. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And actually, that's that that story. I didn't even realise that it's half true. I was galloping one of hers on the B track there, mm. and you know the B track's really tight, mm. and there was no lights hardly in those days. Like mm. it was quite dangerous riding one there. Mm. And I went across the crossing at the mile gap there, and the horse ducked out, and I actually fell off it galloping. Mm. And I held on to the breastplate and my foot got caught in the iron and I was under the horse, but because, and it's galloping. And you know, at the half mile crossing, Mick Stanley used to stand there. Remember Mick? Yeah, Mick Clark Clark of the the course, course, I do, yeah. He he used to stand at the half mile crossing and yell out to people walking across the track on horses, horse galloping, horse galloping. Well, I went past him and he shit himself, right? And Mm. anyway... Um, I was under the horse to the side but hold of the breastplate, mm. right? But my leg, I couldn't get my leg out of the iron. It was twisted. Mm. And um, it stopped. The horse stopped at about the 200 metres. And here's Mick running up the straight after me to grab the horse. And he and he actually had to put me back over a bit to get my foot out of the iron. Goodness. So that, yeah. was, that was on a good one day. I, that was, I think it might have been actually. It was one of those days. And it was one of Gay's horses. Was the and day you won the... It was the day you won the slipper on Canny Lad. That was oh, night. I was, I was so, so yeah. lucky. Yeah. Because I could have had head injuries. I could have done my ankle. I could have done anything. Mm. Um, 
Um, but um, I, I love track work, John. I would sooner go to track work than ride um, races, and that's why I never went to the provincials, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I would rather look after all the horses' track work and know how they were going than mm. going to ride at Kimbler on a Tuesday or Gosford on a Thursday, and mm. I just never did that because I was more interested in in um, track work. And, and the thing that I do hold credit to myself with the track work was Tommy Smith always told a friend of mine, he's the best track working bloke ever and you can always guarantee you'll be the first one there every morning. I never missed one morning, John. Oh, you had that reputation. There's no doubt about it. Now, I'm going to split this interview into two categories, highlights and lowlights. And the highlight category is mind-boggling. You rode so many good horses, it's hard to know where to start. You're probably best known for those four straight golden slippers. The first in 1989 on the Victorian filly Kortzer, owned by the late Nick Collum and trained by the late Ross MacDonald, who wanted Wayne Trelaw to ride her, but it was Nick Collum who insisted on you. You rode her in the Blue Diamond, didn't you, before the slipper? Yeah, well, actually, because of that, that was the last time there was ever a Golden Slipper function after the Golden Slipper. Remember they used to have a dinner after the Golden Slipper where for mm. the BMW or the Tancred Stakes and the Golden Slipper and they had a proper sit-down dinner mm. and present everything? Yes. Well, that was the last year. There was a big fight between Nick and uh, Roscoe that night mm. after the thing and it was chaos, so they never had it again. Mm. Um, but... I was kind of riding for, well, I was riding for Ingham's at that stage, and I think they had boasting going down to run in one of those races at Caulfield. Yeah. So I went down and rode him, and that was the day Kortzer was running in the Blue Diamond prelude, and Nick mm. wanted me on for some reason, whatever mm. reason he wanted me. So I rode it that day, and it won, but um, Roscoe always wanted um, Wayne Trelaw on. Mm. And uh, he'd had a lot of success with him, you know. Mm. Um, but Nick, for some reason, I don't know what it was because I didn't know Nick um, at the time. I'd never heard of him, never met him or anything. Mm. So I rode her in the Blue Diamond and she won the Blue Diamond. And then two weeks later, she came to Sydney and she won the Golden Slipper. Mm. And that really set me off. It really sure did. did. You rode Canny Lad in 11 of his 15 starts. You won two Group 1s, including... The 1990 Golden Slipper, which was run on a heavy track, and he beat two very good fillies, Shane, with me and Paklani. I, I think that year, John, there was about eight Group One winners in the Slipper that mm. come out of it. It's probably one of the the best slippers there's ever been. It was very, very strong when you go through the field. Mm. Um, I had so much confidence in him. Uh, he got beat in the Blue Diamond. It wasn't a, a, one of my better rides. He got interfered with. Uh, I made a couple of mistakes on him in the Blue Diamond. It was a learning experience. Mm. And he probably should have won. And then Jimmy Casty got on him in the size produce and won on him. But I was suspended that day, so I couldn't ride him. Mm. Um, I had so much confidence in him. And I remember going to, to, to the races that day telling Carla, this just can't get beat today. This will just win. It just can't get beat. And I always remember um, going out to ride him, and Lance O'Sullivan and I are very close. And um, as I went out, Lance said to me, good luck today. Uh, good luck, mate. And mm. that's, uh, good luck, you know. And I said, Lance, I don't need luck. He's just going to win. Mm. Um, I've never been so confident in our horses that day. And he got a great run in the race. He was midfield defence and um, – 
Um, I saved ground even though the track was wet. They ran about 1.15 that day. Um, the fence is always the best place to be on a wet track. Golden Slipper Day, it always has been, always will be. Mm. Um, and uh, he stayed on the fence and he won. 1991, you got yourself on Terse, the first of Clary Connor's four Golden Slippers. Now, you rode Terse in eight of his 11 wins and they were consecutive wins including the Triple Crown, the Slipper, the Sires and the Champagne Stakes. And remarkably, you say his best performance was in the last one, the Champagne. Yeah, well, um, he's the best two-year-old ever, ride. He's yeah. outstanding, Tess. Um, I, I would be happy to ride him about, uh, against any two-year-old there's been in the last 50 years. It wouldn't matter. You know, 20 mm. years, I'd back him every day of the week. He, mm. uh, he, he was outstanding. Um, um, he, as you know, tested positive to lignocaine or whatever it is, you know, after yep. the size projects. Um, um, he'd come back and a lot of people say to me he was shinny and this and that. They were treating him. But, John, I rode him the week before at um, at um, Rose Hill and he won by eight lengths or something that day. He was awesome. And I also rode the other favourite that day, a horse called... Um, um, Bold Promise, mm. who started favourite in that slipper. And um, she wasn't as, as impressive as him on that day, two weeks before, or the week before the slipper. He was as good as gold. He never had a problem. So I went and rode him on the Wednesday, the week of the slipper, and he galloped sensational because in those days, I don't know about now, but Clary only used to gallop the two-year-olds once a week on a Wednesday normally. Mm. And he was perfect, but he had a cut in his mouth, Right. And Clary, as you know, was treating him for that. And that's the what came out with the lip yeah. came with the mouthwash, right? Mm. Um, and then he won the size. And um, he'd already returned a positive for the golden slipper. And Clary said, well, I've been giving it <laughs> this mouthwash. And if he's positive for the slipper, he's going to be positive for the size, which yeah. he was. That yeah. returned a positive. Mm. So he wasn't allowed to run in the champagne stakes unless, he was clear. Mm. And of course, he returned clear swabs on the Friday. His best win ever was in the Champagne Stakes. Um, he was very wide midfield early in the race, so I made a decision to go forward and I went forward and used him to get outside the leader. Mm. And and turning for home, when I let him go, he put about three or four lengths on him in two strides, and he won very easy that oh, day. Yeah, yeah. He was electrifying. He, he, you know, and that proved that Lignocaine didn't matter because that was his best win, and it mm. made no difference. And you got to give John. I know I rode the horse, so I'm probably saying it, but John Shrek always used his initiative, and he seemed to have a feel on things and inquiries. Mm. And um, he said that if there was one case ever uh, for a major race where it shouldn't be overturned, that was that. Mm. He's always said that. Yep, he has. Now the and, fourth... of course, then they, come in, then they come in afterwards and change the rules when someone else was in power that any horse with a drug um, is automatically disqualified, you know? Mm. So um, All that over couldn't test. happen anymore. And the Lignocaine yeah. mouthwash, which earned uh, massive headlines. Now, the fourth yes. of your slipper quartet was burst in 1992, again for Clary Connors. It all fell into place when a couple of horses put the leader in that race, Clan O'Sullivan, under heavy pressure. 
I think there were two yeah. or three just hammering Clan O'Sullivan and you sat back and went bang. Well, um, I actually didn't sit back. I had no option. She couldn't go early. She was so tough that she wasn't the best two-year-old that year. Slight chance I always thought I was riding both of them was a better two-year-old and three-year-old than her. Mm. But she was more developed and about two or three months ahead of slight chance, and she was so tough, mm. very, very tough. She actually fractured three of my vertebrae two weeks or three weeks before the slipper um, going to the start at Newcastle. And I had three fractured vertebrae and a fractured uh, spectrum. You know what, what's the bone in your backside? Um, Cox- I fact- fractured Cox- that. Coxic. Yeah, I mm. fact- fractured that. So um, um, she was very, very, very tough. And uh, I had the utmost um, confidence in her. Mm. And um, I had to keep that quiet, otherwise, I wouldn't have been allowed to ride. You know? yeah. Were you but on painkillers that day? I had cortisone for morning of. What mm. what would happen would be I'd go to the um, surgery mm. and I'd get needles in my back and then I'd go to the races and ride. Um, mm. I didn't take many rides and I didn't ride track work. Mm. And then I had this cream which was strong. This is a true story, this one. Mm. I had this cream which rubbed on my bum and back and mm. I had a sheepskin pad which I put on my bum. Mm. Um, and I'd rub this cream on my lower back and my bum and it would just burn like anything. And about <laughs> just before the slipper, I said to myself, I'm going to really whack this on now. Yeah. And I whacked it on. It went through to my text, my balls. Let's say my balls. <laughs> wow. It just burnt like hell. Can you right? be more and specific? The, <laughs> yeah. And I went into the toilet straight away and all the jocks are going out to go and slipper. I'm trying to rub this off with cold water. Mm. And uh, it definitely killed the pain that day. I know that. Mm. But um, I rode her and she won. And um, um, yeah, she was an outstanding two year old. She was tough. She then won the size and then, then she then won the champagne. Yeah. But you also got to give a lot of credit in those days to Clary. Mm. Clary was an outstanding two-year-old trainer. He knew how to keep them up and how to get them right for the big race, and he was a very, very good judge. And he did it on more than one account, um, one on um, mm. one occasion. Like he did it with um, Terse, he did it with Burst, he did it with Encounter. Mm. He kept repeating it with two-year-olds. Yeah, Prowl was another one. Uh, Prowl won the slipper. And Belle du Jour in the year two thousand, the year you went to Hong yeah. Kong. Yep. Yep. Now. Shane, before we leave the slipper, we should mention the horse that should have been your fifth slipper winner, Encounter, coincidentally a son of Terse, who shied away from your whip a hundred metres out to go under by a nose to guineas. He was a spooky sort of a horse, wasn't he? Uh, He was such a hard horse to ride, that horse. People don't realise how hard he was. Um, if you had him, he could pull up. You had to be careful. And the only day he went for me was at uh, Caulfield in the Caulfield Guineas. He was gone at the half mile and he was on the wrong leg and I put a couple round him down the side and I actually did use the stick on him a lot that day and he went. Mm. But outside that, he could just pull up with you. And he had a short run and you had to watch him. But going to the start, I used to ride very, very short, as you know. Mm. But going to the start, I used to just drop my length. He was scared. He could shy at anything. Mm. Um, and and he was an absolute flea, that horse, but he was outstanding. I think I won six group ones on him. Yeah, you did. Um, but, 
every time I rode him, it was a nervous ride, I know that. And he ran a close fourth and a strong Cox Plate, mm. you know. Um, and then he he won Group 1 races like the George Main, I think he won. Yeah. And uh, I know I ran second at his last run in, before he broke down in the yeah. George Ryder Stakes. He just got beat that day and he I went to Melbourne and won a couple of those yeah. Group 1. Shane, he had enormous ability. Do you know, I don't, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, it's an interesting piece of trivia, Encounter had 22 starts. Do you know you rode him in every one of them? Yes, I, I do. I, I was never off his back. That never horse. off I, his I back. I always rode him. He won yeah. 50% no. of them. He won 11 races, six group ones. Ton of ability. Yeah. Now, oh, he, he definitely should. He definitely should have won the um, um, golden slipper. There's no two risks, you know. Like mm. if I don't hit him, I'll go. It wasn't actually when I hit him. It was when I shook the stick by his head, which is a common thing to do. He just dared out. Mm. Um, but you can't do anything about that, John. You know, no, if no. I had the chance again, I'm always going to hit him at the hundred meters when I'm going to go head to head. So mm. it's something. If I had the chance again, would I not hit him? Of course I would not hit him, you know? Mm, mm. But if I had the chance again, not knowing that he would do that, I would hit him every time. Yeah, so yep. it's a catch-22. I'm not going to change anything because it was just him and it was the way he was, you know? I never hit him too low. Yeah. Um, I never hit him wrongly. It was when he saw my whip, at the, and you can see it on film, clear as day. Yeah. When I actually put it up beside his eyes, he just ducked straight out. Mm-hmm. You know, Clary kind of said I didn't give him a hard enough run the week before or two weeks before going into the race. Mm-hmm. And that's a possibility, but still, I like to look after horses going into their grand finals, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Of course. But he come, he come out, John. He come out, John, and won the Sciences next start. Oh, yeah. And and he was going so easy at the 200, and I was so scared to let him go, and I switched the stick to the left hand just in case, and I think I put one around him and he ran in. And he mm. still won, and then he won uh, um, the Champagne Stakes. Yes. Very easy. Yeah, another Grand Slam winner for you and Clary Connors. Mm. Pausing for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast, back with Shane Dye after this. Entries are now open for the 2021 English Select Yearling Sales Series. The series will again comprise five sales. Classic, Premier, Easter, Gold and the Hunter Thoroughbred Breeders Association May Yearling Sale to be held at Riverside in Sydney and Oaklands Junction in Melbourne. Each of the three primary sales, Classic, Premier and Easter, will retain their regular places on the sales calendar. Following its success this year, the Scone sales will be moved permanently to Riverside on May 2nd and May 3rd and will be rebranded the HTBA Yearling Sale. The Gull Sale in Melbourne will be held on May 16th. To discuss the placement of your yearlings, contact a member of the English Bloodstock team. Shane, you rode in 13 or 14 Melbourne Cups for one win on Torrific in 1992. You ran second on Shiver's Revenge, you ran second on Viander Cross, you ran second on Nothing Like a Dane, and you ran third on a horse called Sea Legend in 1986. Now, this was the one that got away because Sea Legend was galloped on at the judge the first time and he ran the rest of the trip on sheer guts to finish third to Attalak and Rising Fear. Did you know something had happened at the winning post? 
Um, no, I seldom get hit behind, but I didn't realise how bad it was. Mm. Um, Empire Rose, who was a huge horse, one of the biggest horses you'll ever see, galloped on and stripped him behind, and I think he ripped the tendon and everything. Mm. Um, so it was a huge effort that day, and he only got beat a head and neck in the Melbourne Cup. So oh, yeah. there's no risk if he was 100% and that hadn't happened. I don't think he, he would have won. I don't think he got out of the box for 18 months. They had him boxed for 18 months mm-hmm. after that race. Yeah, that's true. Colin Alderson told me that story. You won on yeah. terrific for Lee Friedman in 1989. Wasn't he strong at the end of the two miles? Terrific. He, he he was very strong. I actually was pretty confident that day that he could win, and I know he was 30 to 1, but I rode him in the uh, McKinnon Stakes, and in those days, McKinnon Stakes was just a go-around, as you know. You know, mm. um, um, <laughs> he, he got back and ran on a bit, but they're all talking about Empire Roads, right? Mm. And I finished behind there, and I come in and I said to Lee, I said, mate, if they're talking about Empire Rose, I'm telling you, this can beat it in the cup mm. on its run today. And I think she started favourite in the cup. I might be wrong. You know, mm. there was superimposed. It was quite a strong cup. Um, and I wanted a bit of rain because he was better on a wet track. And it was going to rain, but it didn't, unfortunately, that day. And the mm. track was very fast. And I think it, that, that cup's the second fastest. I, th- I know at that stage it was the fastest cup ever. Mm. Um, they went 100 miles an hour. Although this year's Melbourne Cup was pretty quick. There, there's been a couple of quick cups. I think mm. Darren Beedman won a cup when they went pretty quick one year. Kingston but Rule. Anyway... Yeah, Kingston Rule. He went mm. that that cup year was fast, but at that stage it might have been a record. But he just got back. He travelled, and I, I got down the back. And what I used to always do is pick out good jockeys and good horses. Mm. And there was none better than Harry White in Melbourne Cups, and I knew that. Mm. And I got to the mile down the side there, and Harry was two groups in front of me. I think I was following Larry Olson on uh, Lord Highbrow, mm. but two groups ahead of me was Blue Colours. Uh, no, yellow colours, blue cap research. She couldn't win the race. Mm. And Harry was on it. And I said, well, wherever the Harry goes, I'm just going to follow him and go. And I'd mm. made my mind up then. Mm. Um, and I followed him. And he came out a little bit at about the 1,000 metres, a mm. bit more, to be three, four deep. So I just come out and edged out a little bit. And then he went forward a little bit at about the 800. So even though I was two gaps back, I, I said, right, I've got to go forward. And then... Turning for home, it was just bring him to the outside and let him get home, and he was too mm. strong. He got home all right. Anybody who watched the TV coverage of that Melbourne Cup will remember the emotion that you showed on camera in the weighing room. Hell of a moment for a young Kiwi jockey. John, you know, everyone says that the Melbourne Cup's Australian is an Australian race. It's also a New Zealand race. It really is. Mm. You know, as a kid... Um, everyone in New Zealand talks about the Melbourne Cup. You know, it's the greatest race in New Zealand, the Melbourne Cup. And I used to do all the sweepstakes for school, for home, you know, the Mm. 10 cents, the 20 cents had different amount sweepstakes and everyone would watch the Melbourne Cup. Well, Mm. you know, that's all you want to do is win a Melbourne Cup as a Mm. kid. That's, Mm. That's your dream. And so that day... We used to sit in front of the TV at about five o'clock and watch. I used to come home from school early sometimes because yeah. um, five o'clock New Zealand time. Yeah, yeah, five o'clock New Zealand time. It was always on and whatever. 
Uh, the whole family, Nana, Grandpa, everyone would sit around and watch the Melbourne Cup. It was always mm. live on TV. Mm. And so when I got in front of the TV, it just hit me that they would be sitting in front of the TV, everyone, and everyone's mm. so proud. Mm. And um, um, I've got no no regret. It was just my emotion, and it's what what happened. You know, it was fantastic. Mm. And uh, it's a moment I wished everyone could experience in life. But a lot of people don't go go through life without having those type of um, experiences, and mm. uh, it's overwhelming. Mm. Now, mate. We've been chatting for over 40 minutes already and I've got a hell of a lot I want to ask you, so let's just start to roll along a little bit. Few trainers look after a good horse better than Bobby Thompson does and he was rarely without a good horse. You rode three wonderful gallopers for Bob. Let's begin with a filly you loved, Slight Chance, who won 12 races. You rode her in nine of those wins and that included five Group 1s. She was unbelievable in the 1992 Victorian Oaks when she knuckled over at the start, took a huge slice out of a front paston, and then led all the way to win, and as you were unsaddling after the race, she was standing in a pool of blood. Yeah, she she was one of my favourites. She was tiny. She was so small, but... You know, I, I remember one day um, Aaron Kennedy, uh, Aaron Kennedy, the late jockey, galloped her, and Bob said, "Just go out there and go thirty, uh, go six hundred when she first come back. Go three quarter pace for six hundred meters, which mm. is forty five seconds." He ran thirty eight or something. You mm. know, she could do times without you realizing. Mm. Um, she was in the same era as Burst, so we had to split them up, or Bobby split them up, so I could ride both. But um, unfortunately, um, she was about two months behind Burst when it was slipper time. She just wasn't quite as strong. Mm. And I always said to Bobby at that stage, this is better than Burst, I'm telling you, even mm. as a two-year-old. And she just wasn't strong enough. But then he took her to um, Queensland, and she blossomed. She won Five Produce, which was great, Group 1, and then she won the Castle Main, yeah. which was Group 1. Mm. And, of course, she'd come back. I couldn't ride her in the flight stakes. I stuck with Burst, even mm. though I thought she could win. Mm. And I said to Bobby, like, um, they would be happy to have me off Burst because she wasn't winning, and mm. they didn't mind a change of jockey. And also, I'd rather ride Slight Chance anyway. So when Burst won the uh, – beat her in the um, flight stakes. I got back on slight chance from Melbourne. Mm, yep. And great. she did run third in one of the probably the greatest Cox plates ever. That yeah. would be the greatest, wouldn't it? Superimposes when, Cox plate. You dead heated for third. Yeah, that would no, I didn't dead heat. She ran third. Did she? Um, yeah. That would be the yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. That would probably be the greatest Cox plate. You go through that race, there oh, was yeah. naturalism, there was rough habit, yeah. there was better loosen up, there was let's elope, there was mm. superimposed. You know, the list just goes on and oh, on and on. Great field. It was yep. phenomenal. You know, mm. there was there was eight, probably ten horses in that Cox Plate that had multiple burst was even in that race, mm. a multiple Group One wins. Mm. You know, it was so much stronger than they've been lately in Australia. Yeah, that year. Now, mate, let's kick up here. You had a lot to do with that great natured, genuine, versatile Dane win, winner of thirteen races, two point one million. You won three Group 1s on him. You missed out on a Spring Champion Stakes and a Rose Hill Guineas because the owner, or part owner, Sonny Yam, insisted on bringing his Hong Kong jockey, Jackie Shea, 
over to ride him and Jackie rode him 10 times here in Australia. Did you know that? Yeah, he rode him a lot. Um, I would have definitely won the VRC Derby on him. Um, oh. There's no risk about that. He gave him a pretty good ride in the AJC Derby. He ran second, I think, that day. But um, mm. he, he would have had a. There's no risk he would have had a better record if I'd been riding him. Mm. It wouldn't have mattered whether it was Mick Dippman or Shane Dye or Jimmy Cassidy. You know, we all would have done the same on him. Mm. Um, he was a very, very good horse. He was very another tough one. Um, you could put him on the pace and he'd keep going. He could pull a bit in a race, John. You had to be careful of him, mm. and uh, you just had to get him to relax. Mm. Um, he, I didn't ride him. I got taken off him in the year I won the Cox Plate uh, when he was unlucky. He got checked at the 600, and, but then he went overseas and he raced. Uh, but he was outstanding. And, of course, when Bobby gets a good horse, they, he, he, they always seem – he seems to keep them up and they go well and they win a lot of races. Mm. Finally, the remarkable Shogun Lodge, a veteran of 58 starts, 13 wins, 12 seconds, 8 thirds, 4.6 million over a period of four years. He won two Group 1s, an Epsom and a George Main. And listen to this, he ran second in another 12 Group 1s. You wouldn't believe yeah, it, he, boss. He was- he he was a length off being a superstar. That horse he could mm. he, he could really quicken. He never went on a wet track at all. As soon as it rained, like I've got no doubt, he he won the Holiday Cup, I think, with him, and he was favourite for the um, um, the Doombin Cup one mm. year as a yep. three year old. Mm. And it rained the night before in the morning off, so we scratched him. But he would have won that Doombin Cup if it, mm. if he hadn't scratched him and the track was okay. Mm. But he had a he had a short run. And geez, when he quickened, he really quickened. Um, he 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 ran third in a Golden Slipper. Um, he probably should have won the VRC Derby. He got a good run about three back to fence. I rode him, mm-hmm. and um, I saved ground and come out. And if I'd gone for him at the three hundred, really gone for him, yeah, um, he might have won, or he would have won. Yeah. But I tried to. I was worried about the twenty five hundred, and he should have probably got the race on protest. Was that Blackfriars year? Was it Blackfriars? Yeah, Blackfriars went r- run in on top of me, right, mm. and checked me, and I went from beside of him to well, I had to ease around his heels when he ran in front of me, mm. and he was actually favourite in the betting ring to win the protest. Mm. And if you listen to the people like Jenny Chapman and everyone on the TV afterwards, mm. they said, geez, this is going to be close, you know, and, and a few of them were going for mm. he would get the protest, you know, that he could get this protest. Most people thought he would and he didn't. Mm. So that was probably one that got away, but he had every chance in the AJC Derby. Mm. Um, he had every chance in the Spring Championship Stakes, but he did beat Sunline as a three-year-old mm. in the George Main. It was an outstanding win that day, and he was a very, very good horse. Mm. But if he could have just sustained that run for about another fifty meters, that's the my difference. God, he would yeah. have won. He would have won fifteen group ones. Yes, yep. Now, Shane, if we start talking about Ty, the knot will be here all day. So let's capsulise it. A wonderful, wonderful horse. You got to ride well, him in thirty-four. Did you realise that you rode him in yeah. thirty-four of his sixty-two starts? You won thirteen on him, including. Nine Group Ones. Uh, he was explosive yeah. in that uh, Sydney Cup that he won by. Well, he was a three-year-old. His first Sydney Cup, wasn't he? He was a three-year-old. Yeah, he got beat in the Derby. It rained in the Derby, and he wasn't mm. quite seasoned enough. And 
Gold Guru, who I'd ridden to win the um, Randvet Stakes and then run second in the Tancred Stakes the week before, was just more seasoned, mm. and he won. Um, but, you know, you mentioned tie the knot to me, and I say Guy Walter, Sandy Tate. You know, they were wonderful people and we had a great connection and we knew where we were heading every year with that horse and they looked after him so well mm. and we were all on the same page always with yeah. that horse. Yeah. And it was a combination. I don't take credit. Um, Guy shouldn't, Sandy shouldn't, the horse shouldn't. It should all be everyone. You know, mm. it was just a really good combination. Like, you know, that horse never raced in Brisbane. He would have the same preparation, the same spells. Guy looked after him. Yeah. Sandy agreed with everything. And sometimes you don't get that with good horses, John. You know, mm. the owner wants to argue or the trainer switches or, you know, it's mm. just not a combination and everything gets blown up and it shouldn't and that horse would win more races. And mm. he did the best. And he's probably one of the biggest disappointments I've got in racing, Tyler, not because I always thought he would win a Melbourne Cup mm. and he didn't. And I've always regretted that. You know, I would have loved to have seen him win a Melbourne Cup because he really deserved to win one. You only got to ride octagonal five times for four memorable wins. The Cox Plate, 95. Chipping Norton, 97, one of his four chippings. Uh, You won an Australian Cup on him. Uh, You won the Mercedes Classic. And you rode him in his swan song in the Queen Elizabeth Stakes when he was beaten by Intergaze. Now, the Cox Plate, you rode him at 48.5 kilos, as strong as an ox. You wouldn't want to do it every week, but with a bit of notice, you could ride at a remarkably lightweight. Yeah, well, I just you wouldn't eat or drink for about two or three weeks. I actually rode 47 in the Melbourne Cup that year on nothing like a Dane after that. Mm. Um, so I'd had my weight down. And I always had it in the back of my mind, nothing like a Dane might run in the Melbourne Cup if he won the Derby, you know. So mm. um, um, I'd had my weight down for a while that year. And I think I rode a horse called Electronic in the Caulfield Cup, which was 48 and a half kilos. So, um, mm. John, he needed a hard rider. And that's why Darren Beedman and myself got on well with him. Mm. Um, you had to stand over him. He was tough. He, he, he was such a quiet horse. He used to, the word could be called bludge, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was just a L- typical stallion. L- loaf is a nicer word. Well, loaf, that's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Loaf, yeah. yeah. Take exactly. life easy. He was a beautiful horse. He, he he was just so tough and he just wanted to win. Yeah. He just wanted to win, simple mm-hmm. as that. You know, his record speaks for itself as a three-year-old. His record yeah. speaks for, for itself later on and... Um, mm-hmm. He brought so much joy to the Ingham family. I'll never forget the day he won the Tancred Stakes. Mm. And he went across the line and no one knew whether he'd won or not, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm pulling up and I heard the roar of the crowd. And for some reason, they must have announced it straight away. Yeah. Well, they did. Because the roar of the crowd, this was before I'd even pulled up. But right, like, right on the line, though, you weren't sure. Arcady was the other horse, Johnny Marshall. Yeah, correct. Correct. Mm. I wasn't sure whether I'd won or not. You no. know, I didn't know. But when that roar went up, I you said knew. that only means one thing, he's won. Yeah. Now, up above the sky that day, if you can remember, there was a plane. Mm. And they can you remember that? They did the big O in yeah. purple. In, a sky rider. That was a sky rider. A sky rider. They put a yes. huge O in the sky above Rose Hill Racecourse. It was amazing. It was. That was so someone, someone rang him up from downstairs and said he's won, do it now. Mm. Because 
he only did it after as I was coming back. So, yeah. you know, he wouldn't have known. So someone's rung him. I don't know how he got whiff of it, but he got whiff of it, and he put the big O. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and as, as I was coming back that day, um, Bob and Jack were just in tears, and they were high-fiving everyone down the chute at Rose Hill. That's it true. It was incredible. Yeah. And everyone was just screaming, and it was so loud. I think that was one of the biggest crowds to the races at Rose Hill that day. Mm-hmm. It was about 30. I could be wrong, 30. They, they pulled that crowd that day. Yeah. That, that, Memorable day. That. Memorable day. It really day. was. And the brought so much spirit at Jack and Bob, that horse, you know? Yeah. Now, Shane, you've had a lot of experience on television, and you're very familiar yep. with that wind-up signal that the floor manager gives you when we're getting behind time. So try and imagine me winding you up here as we rush through these last few questions. You had one ride on Bone Crusher for a third in a Rawson Stakes. You won a Queen Elizabeth on Doremus. You won a BMW and an Underwood on Dr Grace. You won a Spring Champion and a Victoria Derby, and you ran second in a Melbourne Cup on Nothing Like a Dane. And let's not forget the little horse with the big motor, Viander Cross, who puts you on the front pages in the spring of 1992. Now, your ride in the Caulfield Cup of that year was criticised widely when you were beaten a thumbnail by mannerism. Now, you emphatically defended your ride back then. Has 28 years changed your thinking? No, not at all, John. Look, I was a biased rider. I always was, and I don't understand jockeys who don't, and it annoys me when you're betting. Um, Tracks have bias, especially in Australia, more than anywhere. And if you can find a pattern to that bias, it just gives you length in betting, and it gives you length in riding. And that day, it was better to be out wide. Now, the mistake I made that day is I'd never ridden him before. And when I went, he was gone at the 1,000. He was back last, and he wasn't travelling any good, and I shook him up. Mm. And he took off too too soon. Mm. If I had known the horse, I wouldn't have taken off for another two to 300 metres, right? Mm. But I didn't know the horse. I'd never ridden him. And he got to the front too soon, and um, he got beat. Simple as that. Mm. And I don't even think it was a bad ride. Yes, if I'd cut the corner, um, knowing that what I knew – now, he may have won, but if I, I don't look at it that way. I, re, I was in the best part, and that's why he made up so much ground so quickly, because he was on the best part of the track. And uh, it is what it is. I'll tell you what, John, there's plenty of other jockeys that have run far worse races than that, and they never get mentioned. <laughs> well, we haven't got that's time to mention them today, mate. Because... Oh, jeez, I could, John. Do you <laughs> want me to roll them off? <laughs> We've been talking. good riders now. We've been talking for 56 minutes. Now, here's one. Your career went belly up in the autumn of 1987 when you got six months for alleged team riding in the AJC Derby. You rode an $80 pop called Imprimata, which led in the race. Coming to the home turn, you had a prolonged look over your right shoulder before allowing Imprimata to leave the fence, presenting a run to his stablemate Maya Card, which went on to win easily. Now, you got six months, but it was obviously only a suspension because you continued to ride work. Yeah, I continued to ride work for Vic Thompson out at Warwick Farm. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. Um, um, I got smarter, and uh, when I got the transcript, what I actually said in that, in that um, steward's room wasn't actually on the film. 
Um, and that's a big mistake a lot of jockeys make, actually. So I got a lot smarter. I learned a lot. I had six months off. It was the first break I'd ever really had, even though I kept riding work and everything. And it did me the world of good. You know, um, I've got to thank John Shrek for that. At the time, I didn't, naturally. But no. in hindsight, after a year or two, you look back and say, geez, I'm glad that happened. It's just like my fall in Hong Kong, you know. Mm. It probably ended my career, my bad one. Yeah. But, mate, I'm in a great position now mentally, my lifestyle. And if that hadn't happened, my life would have been different, mm. you know. So mm. sometimes there's things that are bad but end up good. And it's just how you, you think about things and how you make them. Mm. You know, you turn a negative into a positive. Let me throw this one at you. This was another low light. July 1993, you rode a filly called Blonde Ambition in a two-year-old filly's race over 1,200 metres at Rose Hill. Now, that filly was owned by your wife, Carla, was trained by Alan Denham and was backed in from $11 to five fifty. Not the biggest plunge in the world, but she was well supported. Now, you cross from barrier 16, and there was a lot of interference to your inside. You lost the race on protest, and you copped three months for your trouble. Was that harsh, well, or did you deserve it? Oh, no, I deserved it, but it should never have lost the race. She won by three lengths. There was no horse that was going to beat her, but I think. John was filthy of what I did, you know. It was June and um, I was always going to go away on holiday. I wasn't going to ride anymore and um, I was immature. Um, it was silly what I did and I shouldn't have done it. I just jumped down and come across, you know. But she should never have lost the race, never. That was wrong. But I think they were filthy because they knew what had happened. Um, I think my wife had a very big bet on us because I wasn't allowed to bet in those days and still can't. But don't get me on the subject of betting and jockeys, please. It's the worst rule in the world. No. Always was, always will be. Um, and um, it cost her a, a, a big six-figure sum. And mm. um, she, she, that always should never have lost that race. There's no way it could have got beat, but it is what it is. And uh, I just had a holiday, come back better than ever. With the emergence of satellite uh, racing channels around Australia, it's not unusual to see jockeys doing regular spots on television. But again, you were the first. Yeah, I, I started that with you, John, if you remember. Yeah. Of course. Well, um, you, you were a um, panellist on Channel 9's racing show with myself and Simon yep. O'Donnell. You took to it like a duck yep. to water. Yeah, well, I had to go before the AJC committee and they said they wouldn't. I wasn't allowed to tip or anything, and I got called in a few times because I used to, you know, but I just used to say, geez, I'd love to be riding this in this race. And it gives you another outlook. And if you have a look at all sports in the world now, who commentates on all sports? Like, look at rugby league. What is it? It's not rugby league announcers. Ex- Most of them are rugby league players. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Tennis. Tennis is John McEnroe. Jim, Jim Currier, you know, it never used to be like that. That's in the world change, you know. You have a look at cricket, they're all cricketers, mm. you know, all sports. But for some reason, racing wasn't like that, was it? Mm. And there's no one better. I thought Corey Brown was very good in Melbourne when he yeah. was commentating. Did a You've good job. You've got to have a jockey. He did a good job. You've got to have a jockey commentating because mm. they've been there, they know it, and they can explain something better, just mm. as a rugby league player can. You know, they know they've been in that situation, and mm. it's better to listen to them. But, no, I enjoyed my time, and um, I, I liked it, and um, it was another avenue, mm. and uh, it was good that I could get the racing, well, jockeys, give them another chance in life outside of just riding. Yep. 
Channel 9 confronted you with a huge task on the Tuesday morning before a golden slipper in the 1990s when they asked you to actually gallop a horse around the slipper course with a camera and sound equipment actually strapped to your back uh, and to provide a commentary on what a jockey would be thinking uh, throughout the running of a golden slipper. Now, Shane, that's the best thing I ever saw you do on television. It was very, very good. Um, well, I'm only just telling it how it was, you know, in a race and how you're thinking, you know. Um, I remember doing that. Uh, John, I was actually probably the first who tried to get a helmet on my cap in a race, in mm. a real race, and they wouldn't allow me. And the reason they wouldn't allow me it was because it would lose concentration, mm. right? And I'd know it was there. Now, they wear them all the time in races. Mm-hmm. You mean, you mean a camera, a, a race cam, a, a jockey camera. cam? Yeah. yeah, a race cam, a jockey cam. I mm. tried to wear them in races back in the, with, when I was with you at uh, Channel 10. That was in the mm. 90s, and mm. they wouldn't allow it. They would not allow it. No. And, and it just shows you how much in, in time things change, you know, mm. and you just got to adapt, and uh, it was the thing of the future. And some of the footage you see from jockeys now with the cam is sensational, mm. and they actually use it during the race. You're the father of two sons from your two marriages. Nicholas is 29, Jack is 18, and both too big to follow in your footsteps. What are the boys up to? Well, they're both very good. They're good kids. Um, um, Nicholas works for a betting company, and um, he enjoys that or he likes that. He's always done that. Um, and Jack did very, very well at school last year, and he's in uni, and uh, he's um, he's on a different level. Um, the very opposite, Nicholas is a very emotional child, and, or no, he's not a child, he's 29, but, mm. you know, he, he's a real softy, yep. and the other one's real hard. Nicholas sleeps eight to ten hours a night, Jack sleeps three, um, <laughs> and he's 18, three or four. They're just so yep. different, and so it's great, you know? And, and Nicholas will say, that kid's just got no emotion, Dad. And I go, yeah, I know. He's not like you, Nicholas. <laughs> and then, you know, um, if I ring Nicholas, I can guarantee you that he'll ring me back within one minute if he doesn't answer the phone or he sends me a message, Dad, this and that. You know, we talk 10 times a day. If yeah. I ring Jack, 50-50 whether I get him. And he's mm-hmm. only just starting to ring back now because I keep drumming it into him. Nicola, Jack, you've got to ring back, you know. Yeah. Um, they're just so different. But both very good boys. Um, um, Nicola, Jack will go into finance or he's already in finance. And um, Nicholas loves the music industry. So um, he always has. And um, he always seems to go everywhere around the world every year to Kinshella mm-hmm. in America this year he was a bit upset because he was going to Germany. They have a big festival there, and, of course, with COVID, he couldn't go. Mm. So, no, they're, they're great boys, and I talk to them every day. I don't see them as much as I should, but that doesn't mean that we're not close because no. they hear from me, and I'm always there there for them, and we always go on holidays every year, and I come for them at Christmas. But, you know, um, it's one thing I, I regret not being in their lives around them a little bit all the time, but unfortunately with my lifestyle, it just didn't work out and I've got to accept that. But, you know, it's something I have regretted a little bit, but, you know, we still see each other and we talk every day, John. Where do you see yourself in five years? 
Good question. I don't know. I didn't think I'd leave Macau, but unfortunately, the virus got me out of Macau. I like the lifestyle in Macau. Um, I can see myself at the Gold Coast. Can you? Yeah. I think I'm. I think when she opens it up, I'll go and live at the Gold Coast for a while. I like the Gold Coast. Have a, a have, a, have, a, have a bit of respect. What do you mean, she? Um, the premier. <laughs> yes, I knew. I knew who you meant. I thought you might call her by oh. name. <laughs> Oh, no. What's her name? I can never pronounce Anastasia it. Palaszczuk. Yeah, I'll just call her she. Yeah, I can't, <laughs> you know me, I can't pronounce a lot of words, especially since my accident. So I get around it by saying <laughs> different things. Right? Certainly... I cheat. Yeah. I cheat. But um, I'll probably go up there and live because um, where I am here, it's very boring and there's not a lot to do. And it's lovely seeing the family and I love them dearly. But. Um, mm. I need a bit of excitement in my life, John, and um, <laughs> I've got a lot of friends at the Gold Coast. Mix up there, yep. uh, see Mickey and play golf with Mickey and have some dinners and, mm. um, now I've got good friends there. Yeah. Well, Shane, you'll be interested to know that this is the longest podcast uh, that I've conducted since commencing the website two and a half years ago. Congratulations. John, we haven't even spoken about the rights and wrongs of racing yet. We haven't scratched the surface, and we'll do it again one oh, day. Mate, I, you should, because I could tell you what's right and what's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have another crack at it in the future. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. been a long time since we've had a yarn, and I've enjoyed it. Thanks, John. Nice being on the show, and good luck to everyone, and have a very, very merry Christmas, and let's hope we can just avoid this COVID, and hopefully it's gone in 12 months. Our special guest on uh, this podcast, produced by Supernova Sound, was the former champion jockey and unforgettable character, Shane Dye.